Well, today we continue in our study of Jonah, and we are in Jonah chapter 3, and I invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 3. We'll look at the first three verses, and as you look at this, we're in a way seeing what we've already seen before. The text seems to repeat itself. In chapter 1, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and take a message to the Ninevites, And then in chapter 3, we'll see today that God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and take the message to the Ninevites, right? So the text is repeating itself. God is repeating himself. And we may ask the question, do we just, you know, breeze through this because this is stuff that we've already seen? And do we get to the new material more quickly because we've already studied this? Well, the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely and categorically not. Um, the repetition here is deliberate. It's intentional. We're, we're all familiar with the name Thomas Edison, right? It's the man who invented the light bulb. He actually didn't invent the light bulb, but he participated in refining it and uh, making it uh, so that everybody can use it, the, the entire society. Well, Thomas Edison is known for the fact that he tried and tried and tried many, many times, and he failed many, many times. And so when he was working on the light bulb, he tried to light it up so that it would burn for, for a long period of time. And so he tried various materials to put inside the light bulb so that it would keep burning. He tried paper, he tried uh, cotton, he tried cardboard, he tried different types of grass, he tried bamboo in it, and so finally, after all of these attempts, he got it to work the way that it could work, the way that he wanted it to work. And so after all of this, the story goes that the reporter came to him with the clever question, how does it feel to fail 10,000 times, right? And Edison gave him that famous reply, I did not fail 10,000 times. I succeeded in showing that those 10,000 ways do not work. That was his reply. But all throughout his life, Thomas Edison is known for this tenacity to repeat and to keep going until he achieved his goal. And this persistence is probably seen most clearly in his life, towards the end of his life, in his later years, when... um, the buildings that he was using to do experiments on his inventions, when those buildings caught fire and the blaze became became so great that they couldn't stop the fire until all of it burned down. He was 67 years old. And so at that time, another reporter came to him and he asked him, how are you handling this fact that everything that you built has now burnt down? And his answer was this. He says, although I'm 67 years old, I'll start all over again tomorrow. That was his tenacity to repeat and to keep going. And that's exactly what God does with Jonah and with his mission to the Ninevites. He starts over. Jonah fails, fails to obey God. And so God begins with him once again. The repetition in this story is deliberate and it's meaningful. It reveals God's character. It shows God's determination to pursue sinners. So the passage that we'll cover today, Jonah 3, 
It reveals God's pursuit of sinners, and it does this in four parts. God's mission, God's message, God's messenger, and God's mission field. Well, when we look at this, first we see in chapter 3, verse 1, we see God's mission to save sinners. God is determined to save the lost. God will not give up. God will not yield. God will not compromise. He will pursue the sinners until he achieves his goal, until he achieves what he has ordained. So look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads, Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time. And this is what I meant when I said that the text repeats itself. If you look at the screen, you'll see that I compare Jonah 1 and Jonah 3, the first verses, and Jonah 1, 1 reads, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and then it says in 3, in chapter 3, verse 1, now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying. It's essentially the same thing. And not only is the text repeating itself, the text is saying that it's repeating itself because it says it came to Jonah the second time. But like I said, we can't simply zoom out here and just overlook this. This is deliberate. If the Bible is repeating itself, it's trying to make an important point. Every word in the Bible is inspired. Every word is inerrant. Every word is important. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And the repetition in this verse specifically, it says, pay attention to what is going on. Pay attention to what the text is about to say. And the point is that God is determined to save. If you do something once, that shows that you want to do it. If you do something twice, that means that you're determined to do it. And that's what God is doing here. God is a God of salvation. He's a God of salvation who pursues his mission to save sinners with all of his determination. God does not desire the death of sinners. In Ezekiel 18, verse 23, God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And the implied answer is no. But then in verse 32, God gives this categorical answer. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. And this is the very principle that is repeated in 2 Peter 3.9, where it says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The text is clear that God is not pleased when sinners die. So we may ask the question, well, what is God pleased with? What does bring pleasure to God? Remember Isaiah 53, verse 10, using the very same language, it says this, Yahweh was pleased to crush him, the Messiah Jesus. Then Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What brings God pleasure is the salvation 
of sinners, even if it means that his own son has to go to the cross and die. This is why when Jesus was being baptized in the New Testament, in Matthew 3, it says, God the Father spoke from heaven, and the text says, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased because the Son will fulfill the will of God the Father in its entirety. This is why when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was talking to Moses and Elijah. He was talking about his crucifixion, according to Luke 9. He was talking about his crucifixion. And then a voice comes from heaven, from God the Father, and God says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17 says this. God is so determined to achieve his mission of salvation, and he's so pleased with this mission that he gave up his son to die for all of the sinners so that this plan can be achieved. And that is why we can be sitting here today and reading about this and celebrating this. And that is why we can be called God's children. But God is not only determined to save sinners like the Ninevites from their sin and from perishing. God is also on a determined mission to save Jonah from his sin, from himself, from his stubborn and disobedient and his rebellious self. God had already given the commandment to Jonah to go to Nineveh, but Jonah refused. So God could have just let Jonah die. And he could have used another prophet, right? God had done that before. He could have simply let him die. Think about Nadab and Abihu that Pastor John mentioned this morning. In Leviticus 10, they disobeyed God and they immediately died. Think about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They died because of their impure motives. God could have used an animal to go to the Ninevites and to bring a message to them, right? God spoke through the donkey in Numbers 22 to the uh, false prophet Balaam. God could have done that with the Ninevites. In Revelation 8.13, at the end of time, God sends an eagle throughout the world to preach the gospel and to preach the message of condemnation to the rest of the world. An eagle does this. God could have done that. God could have even raised up stones to preach the message. In Luke 19.40, Jesus says that if his disciples don't worship him, then the stones will cry out. God does not need Jonah. God does not need any of us. The fact that he chooses to use us is our privilege to be part of his mission. And when God comes to Jonah a second time, God is giving Jonah a second chance, just like God gave Peter a second chance when Peter denied Christ and then repented. God is not looking for perfect people. God is looking for people who will repent and who will submit to God. Those who sin, but those who will repent. And God is actually determined to use us, to use you and to use me. And there will be times when if we refuse to be used by God, God will go to great lengths to use us and to change us. And that's what he does with Jonah. He goes to great lengths to use Jonah. And that's an expression of God's mercy and God's pursuit of Jonah. 
And this is the significance of God coming to Jonah the second time. The repetition that we see in this passage shows that God is determined to show mercy to sinners. Whether it's to save sinners like the Ninevites from perishing, or it's to sanctify his own like Jonah so that he could use them to bring his message. You know, but as we look at this, we can ask the question, why is God so determined in his mission to bring his message to the sinners? Why not just leave them alone? And the answer is simple. Because God is the only one who has a message that will save the sinners. And this is the second part of God's pursuit that we see here. We see that God pursues sinners with a specific message for salvation. God gives Jonah a message to deliver to the Ninevites that ultimately causes the Ninevites to repent. In verse 2, God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out to it this very call which I am going to speak to you. And as God speaks here to Jonah, he gives him three commands, three imperatives that relate to God's message of salvation to the Ninevites. God says to Jonah, arise, which expresses the urgency of this act. God already told Jonah to arise, but Jonah defied that. But God's response is that people are living without God. People are dying without God. So God says to Jonah, stop wasting time. Get up and fulfill this task. Then God says to Jonah, go, go. And this seems obvious to us, right? We know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And we've already seen that there was no other prophet in the Bible who was commanded to go to a foreign nation. The prophets, they preached to Israel, they preached to Judah, but they preached about other nations. But now Jonah is commanded by God to go to a foreign nation. And this shows that God is the God of all the nations. And that from the very beginning, God had a plan to bring his message to all of the nations, whether Jewish or Gentile, God had a plan to save, to bring a message of salvation to all of the nations. He saves both Israelites like Jonah and Gentiles like the Assyrians. And then God says to Jonah, call out, call out. Now, Pastor John mentioned a number of weeks ago the terrible saying that was attached to Francis of Assisi. The the saying is, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Well, here God says, use words. He says, call out to Jonah. You must absolutely live out the message that you're preaching, but God explicitly says to Jonah, call out. And God is specific in what you must call out. You don't just call out any message You call out only the message that God tells you to bring to the people. He says, call out this very call which I'm going to speak to you, or sometimes translated, proclaim this proclamation which I'm going to speak to you. God has a very specific message that he wants delivered to the Ninevites. 
Now, as we look at this, at this very verse, we don't yet see the details of this message, but we see in the first couple of chapters that the message includes the fact that God is a judge and that God is compassionate. Excuse me. That God is a judge and that God is compassionate. We see that God is judge, that he's holy and that he doesn't tolerate sin or evil in chapter 1, verse 2. And God says there to Jonah, go to Nineveh and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God doesn't tolerate sin. God doesn't tolerate evil. He is perfectly holy, so he cannot, he cannot accept it as it is. He punishes it and he judges it. And we also see that God is compassionate. And we see this in our section here in chapter 3, verse 2, where God says, go to Nineveh and call out to Nineveh, this very call which I'm going to speak to you. The first part of the message in chapter 1 is call out against the Ninevites. But then the second part is call out to the Ninevites, where the sense of condemnation is set to the back, and then the sense of compassion is brought forward. There is judgment, but there is also compassion. Judgment, when there's no repentance. Compassion, when there is repentance. And then later on, we do see Jonah clearly preaching a message of condemnation. And in chapter 4, we see Jonah complaining that God is compassionate. So the two of these come together in the coming text. But this is the message that God commands Jonah to call out to the Ninevites. And this message of salvation, that sin demands judgment, but that those who repent receive God's compassion, this message of salvation has not changed from the very beginning of time, and it will not change until the very end of time. The only difference right now is that we know the person, Jesus Christ, who achieved this uh, act of salvation for us. But at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the message that Abner spoke on last week in the main service, God speaks there about the suffering and the victory of the Messiah for our sin. God says to the serpent there, he says, He, that is the Messiah Jesus, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Suffering and victory included together. Then many centuries later in Isaiah 53, Isaiah writes, He, the Messiah... He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says of himself, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then at the end of time, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, John writes this, Jesus Christ the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, to him be the glory and the might forever and ever. The message does not change. It's the same from the beginning until the end. And Peter sums up this message for us in Acts 4.12, where he says, there is salvation in no one else, 
for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. God's message is not a better message. God's message is not even the best message that is out there. God's message is the only message. And this is why Paul, in Galatians 1.8, this is why Paul says, even if we, or an angel from heaven, should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. This is the only message that will bring sinners to salvation. But as you think about this, don't think that the other messages are just powerless. They're not powerless. They have power, and they will succeed, but they're going to succeed in one thing and one thing alone. That is to bring people into hell. God's message is the only message that is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, according to Romans 1.16. That's why Paul uses such strong language against any other message or against anyone who preaches any other message. And he says, let them be accursed. And this is why when God sends Jonah to Nineveh, he says to him explicitly, and he commands him, call out to them this very call which I am going to speak to you. Because there is no other message. There is no other message that saves. This is why God is pursuing the Ninevites with this specific message, a message of judgment and a message of compassion that ultimately brings the Ninevites to repentance. Well, thirdly, we see God's messenger of this mission. We see God pursue sinners through his messenger of salvation. And in this instance, we see that God's instrument to carry this message to them is, of all people, Jonah, the once rebellious but the now obedient prophet Jonah. When God sends Jonah the first time, Jonah does not go. But when God sends Jonah the second time, Jonah does go. Now, this should encourage us because this means that just like God can use a broken vessel like Jonah, God can use broken vessels like you and me. And we can be part of his plan. We can be part of his mission to save the sinners. Look at Jonah 3.3. It says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now I've already spoken to a number of you about the question, was Jonah's repentance in chapter 2 genuine or was it phony? Right In Jonah 2, he cries out to God, But if you go to Jonah 4, you see that he becomes angry with God when God saves the sinners. So doesn't this mean that Jonah's repentance was all a performance, that it was all a show? Well, when we look at this verse carefully, we see that Jonah's repentance was, in fact, genuine. Jonah understood that he needed to submit to God. He needed to obey God and to follow his will. And we see this in this verse. Did he become perfectly sinless? No, and we can look at chapter 4 to see this. Did his hatred of the Ninevites disappear? Chapter 4 shows us that that is not the case. 
Did he align his will with God's will perfectly to save sinners? Well, if you look at chapter 4, you'll see that that is not the case either. So then, in what way was his repentance sincere? Well, we see that God broke Jonah's will of outward, outright rebellion against God. God used the circumstances of Jonah's life and the circumstances of his near-death experience to compel Jonah to submit to God, to obey God. God was working on Jonah. And Jonah's obedience to God shows us that change. It's one of the fruits of repentance of his life that we can see. And this is what we have to live with in our imperfect flesh, in our sinful flesh, where our life is tarnished by sinfulness even when there is repentance. Romans 7.15, Paul writes about this and he says that his body is plagued by sin even when he repents. He says there, "For for what I am working out, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Or think about Paul's rebuke to the Galatians for returning to their legalistic lifestyle. In Galatians 4.9, Paul says, But now, having known God, or rather having been known by God, he says, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? Jonah is experiencing this situation where he repents but his life is plagued with sin and disobedience and his sin, sinfulness of hating the Ninevites. It's still part of him. And in chapter 4, it reemerges once again explicitly. And he turns to this just like Galatians describes. He turns to this once again in his sinfulness. I have an Israeli friend that I got to know in Israel both uh, the husband and the wife. And uh, the wife tells her testimony that she grew up in a completely secular home. And one of the key characteristics that she had to deal with when she became a believer was her hatred of the Arab people. She grew up in her family just hating the Arab people. And I saw this in Israel as I was there Um, I saw it in different contexts. I remember coming home once to my apartment, and I lived with two non-believing Israelis. um, And there was a terror attack in Jerusalem. And so I came home after the terror attack, and I saw these two roommates standing by the window. And any time that Arab people would walk by, they would shout through the window, death to Arabs. And I saw this in other contexts of Israel as well, among non-believing Israelis. Uh, Well, my friend who became a believer, she tells her testimony that when she was growing up, she had this hatred for the Arab people, and this was something that she kept struggling with, and she was repenting over it, over and over. And she said that she came to a point where she hated the fact that she hated the Arab people. But the point of her testimony is that God took this animosity from her and he brought her to a point where not only did she not hate the Arab people, she actually began to view those who were believers 
as her brothers and sisters in Christ, and for those who were not believers as her mission field. But as she became a believer, she struggled with this, even though she repented of it over and over and over. And this is the situation with Jonah. He repents in Jonah too, but his repentance is imperfect. But chapter 3, verse 3 shows us that his repentance was genuine because he submitted to God's will and he carried out his obedience. And we can see the genuineness of this repentance in three different parts. So look at this verse. First, we see Jonah's initial obedience to God. When God commands Jonah, get up, Jonah gets up. Now, it's fair for us to be a bit skeptical because God told Jonah to get up the first time in chapter 1, and Jonah got up. But there Jonah got up to flee from God. Here Jonah gets up to submit to God and to go to Nineveh. Secondly, we see that Jonah's repentance is genuine because of his continued obedience, his initial obedience and now his continued obedience with a desire to bring this obedience to completion. Earlier, Jonah fled from the presence of God, but here he went just as God had commanded him. Now understand that Jonah had plenty of opportunity to change his mind and not to carry through with this submission to God. He was vomited out by the fish on dry land. That's what the text says. Uh, But he wasn't vomited out in Nineveh. He had to go to Nineveh. Right In verse 2 of this chapter, God says to him, go to Nineveh. And then in verse 3, it says that he went to Nineveh. That means that he wasn't there. He wasn't in Nineveh. If he were there, it would have said he began to go into the city. But that's exactly what verse 4 says when he got to Nineveh. So he wasn't vomited in Nineveh. He was likely vomited at Joppa because God uses the very same language in chapter 1 that he does here in chapter 3. So God is starting over. God is giving him a second chance to fulfill what he disobeyed to, uh, to fulfill the first time. Now, the distance from Joppa to Nineveh is about 500, 550 miles. And you can see a map on the screen that I've already shown to you before, but just as a reference point. And he had to travel these 550 miles by foot probably to get to Nineveh, which is about two weeks. Now, I went to my GPS and my iPhone to see, you know, what exactly is 500 miles uh, in our terms and what, what does that mean? And I typed in the Sacramento airport, and that was 450 miles. Well, that's close enough for me. So then I chose the walk option, right? <laughs> and it says that it would take me 12 days to walk there if I took 12-hour breaks every day. If I didn't take any breaks then it would take me six days to get there. That's if I walked 24 hours a day for six days. Of course, I would die, right? (laughs) I would never succeed in that endeavor. Well, Jonah had to walk to Nineveh for two weeks, and during these two weeks, he never changed his mind. He kept to his obedience to God, and he fulfilled and he carried through with it until it was complete. And so we see Jonah's genuineness in his initial obedience. We also see it in this continued obedience to God. 
And then we see Jonah's genuineness and his deliberate obedience to God. And I think that if we had any doubt whether his repentance is genuine or not, um, this deliberate obedience actually demonstrates that, no, his uh, repentance was indeed genuine. It says here that Jonah obeyed God according to the word of Yahweh. And this statement makes two important points. It shows that Jonah obeyed God with precision and with intentionality, that he wanted to do this. And it shows that the scriptures affirm that he did what God said for him to do. The clause, according to the word of Yahweh, it occurs many times in the Bible. And it shows this very precision and biblical affirmation of the fact that the action is carried out exactly as God commands it to be carried out. When David told the Levites to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem when David was establishing his kingdom there, they did so, and they did so according to the laws that God commanded Moses. And so 1 Chronicles 15.15 says, And the sons of the Levites carried the Ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of Yahweh. The Levites did exactly what God said, and the scriptures affirmed that the Levites did exactly what God said. And this was the case with Jonah. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, according to the word of Yahweh, it shows that he's intending to submit to God, and it shows that he does Submit to God according to the scriptures. Was he perfect? No. God was working on him piece by piece, one piece at a time. And so Jonah, even though he was imperfect, he was able to be part of God's plan to pursue and to save the Ninevites. Well, finally, we see God's mission field, a wicked city that is large, and that is precious to God. The text says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And this is a simple, but it's a should be a most encouraging point for all of us. God's mission field is the world of sinners. And this is exactly what Jesus said in Luke 19:10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And the Ninevites were sinners who were lost and whom God was pursuing to save them. And we see this in a couple of parts. First of all, Nineveh had a reputation for being a pagan city of brutality. You know, when, I, when you and I hear the city Las Vegas, we think of sin and immorality. And then if you go to a church in Las Vegas, they say, when you hear the city Los Angeles... You, say, you think of sin and immorality, and that's true. Well, when the Israelites heard Nineveh, they thought of ruthless brutality. And the Ninevites were proud of this. They painted this brutality on walls and on gates so that other people would see this. And one image like this shows an Assyrian king, Shalmaneser, just standing there, and around him, there are dismembered hands and feet and heads as he stands there. It's a moment that is proud for him. And this is what the Israelites knew them for. I won't share with you some other gruesome images. 
but they were proud of this wickedness. And the point is that God was pursuing this wicked city, and they were a mission field to him. Now, we also see that this wicked city was large in size, and that this size mattered to God. This is the third time in this text that the book uses great, the word great, to describe Nineveh. In Jonah 1.1, God calls the city great. In Jonah 3.1, just above, God calls the city great. And then here in 3.3, the text again calls the city great. The book of Jonah wants us to understand that this was a large city and that there were many people, many souls in this city who were pagan and who were perishing. And if you go to 4.11, Jonah 4.11 Uh, There it says that there were 120,000 children in the city, which means that there were probably 500 or 600,000 people, including the parents and other folks who lived in that city. And all of these people were perishing. But we already said that God is not pleased with people who die, according to Ezekiel 18. In contrast to this, Luke 15.10 says that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the fact that there were many souls who were perishing did matter to God. And then thirdly, we see that Nineveh was a precious city to God. The expression exceedingly great city is a very specific expression in the Bible. And it speaks not only about the size of the city, but also about the worth of the city. Literally, the text says it was a great city to God. This was a great city in the eyes of God. And God cared about the people who were in this city who were perishing because of his care for these souls. So what we have here is God demonstrating concern for a large city and a wicked city full of wicked people whom God is pursuing. This is God's mission field. And this is exactly what Jesus said in Luke 5.32. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sinners are God's mission field. And the fact is that all people are sinners. To God, it doesn't matter if you're a quote-unquote good person who's going to hell, or if you're a wicked person who's going to hell, both types of people are God's mission field, and God pursues pursues both kinds of people in order to save them. And Jonah shows here that it doesn't matter to God if you're Jewish or Gentile. The whole world is God's mission field. God pursues the entire world of people. What this verse shows us here is that God's mission field is the world of sinners. Well, this is what we see when we begin Jonah chapter 3. God pursuing sinners with determination to save them, both Israelites and Gentiles, because God is the God of all peoples. And this is what we see in the church today, people from all nations from all backgrounds. And this is what we're going to see in heaven, people from all nations. Revelation 7, 9 says, 
that John looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And you know what these people were saying? They were saying salvation belongs to our God. The same thing that Jonah was saying in Jonah chapter 2 when he was repenting. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Now the people are saying this because God has pursued and he has saved all of them. And the only reason they can be saying this is because God saved them. I think this is good reason for us to both praise God and to seek to be part of God's plan because it has eternal ramifications. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a determined God and that you're determined to save sinners. Lord, and the only reason that we're here is because you were determined to save each one of us. Lord, help us to never forget this. Help us never to take this for granted. And Lord, use us to be part of your plan to save other sinners, to bring your message of salvation, message of repentance, and message of condemnation to others who are not yet saved. Lord, we pray that we would do this and we would seek to do this for your glory and your glory alone. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.